Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. Got your Bibles? You want to open to the book of Luke? We get a, uh, a brief respite from, uh, from Isaiah for a couple weeks. We're going to be actually in the 18th chapter, or actually we're going to be in the 19th chapter, but we'll start in the 18th. Have you ever, have you ever wanted to be in charge? Have you ever wished that you could be king for a day? Have you ever sat there and and watched the goings on of things from Washington D.C. say, you know, I could do a heck of a lot better job than that guy in the White House? We all have our ideas of, you know, what we would do. You know, what would be what would be your first order of business, right? What would be the first thing you would do? What would be the second thing? What would be your ultimate goal for that time? What would you change? Uh, the biggest question is, what would you do that would have lasting impact? I mean, there's a lot of things that leaders do, but the next administration comes in and completely reverses it. But what would you do that would have a huge, long-lasting impact? You know, most of us probably have a very narrow idea of what it means to be king. We, we might think that, you know, if I was king, I could have everything I wanted. Everybody would wait on me hand and foot at my beck and call. Everybody would, I would say, go, and they'd say, how far? But see, the reality is that whenever you're a leader of a group, whether it's a king or whether it's a president or whether it's the leader of a, of a company, there is a lot that rides on your shoulders. Decisions that you make will have long-lasting effect. And it will affect not just the few people in your in the court or in the offices around you. It's going to have a long effect, a big effect on everybody who's in the country or in your kingdom. You're not going to be able to make everybody happy. Emotions are going to run high in the halls of leadership. And the reality is, I imagine that if most of us really knew the truth of what it was like to be, let's say, the president, most of us would say, I'm going to pass. <laughs> I'm going to pass. I mean, think about this. Look at, look at Israel's first king. The people had no king. They had God as their king, and they had the, had the prophets and the judges And yet they wanted a king, so they asked God to give them a king. So he gives them a king. And their first king would have been King Saul. And in 1 Samuel, we see that Saul is chosen by God himself to be king. But Saul hides. (laughs) He doesn't come out and say, yep, I'm king. What are we going to do first? Let's go. He hides. And then he goes back home for like a year, and he doesn't even tell his uncle that he was anointed king. Over Israel, kind of interesting, wouldn't you? You know, wouldn't you tell your family? Guess what happened to me today? I got a call. I got a call from Congress, and now I'm the president. 
you know. But he doesn't. And then when Samuel comes to present him, he hides, he hides in the crowd. He's a very reluctant king because he knew, I think he knew, as bad as Saul was, he knew being king is not all it's chalked up to be. But today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the true king. We're going to look at who, who the true king is, who, who was not reluctant to be king. And to do everything it was going to take to be king. So again, open your Bibles to Luke 19. Now, this of course is Palm Sunday. Most of us who've been in the church for a long time know that Palm Sunday is when we we wave the palms and we we talk about Jesus entering Jerusalem. But I want to set it up a little bit for you about what was going on um, leading up to that. Previously, in the book of Luke, Jesus, he had set his eyes on Jerusalem. And And this wasn't the first time he'd gone to Jerusalem. Every year he would go, because every year you had to go as as an adult male, especially you had to go for the Passover. And for certain feasts, you had to go to Jerusalem, if you could. So he sets his eyes, means he he looks, it's time. Everything is happening, leading to going to Jerusalem. Kind of like when we go on vacation, you you start getting ready. A couple weeks before, you start planning, you get your mind set on, that's where we're going to get ready to go and where we're going. This wasn't going to be a vacation for him, though. And the time ahead of him would be the culmination of his ministry. This is why he came. Everything was leading up to this moment. He's about to do exactly what he came to do. From his birth to his baptism and throughout the time so far, it's always been about the atonement. It's always, always been about him coming and, and being the Savior of the world, for forgiving us of our sins, paying the price, paying the penalty for our sins. That has been the goal from the start. And even farther back, as we'll see here. Jesus was born so he could die. And he had to die so that he could be resurrected. And his death and resurrection had to occur so that we may live and be with him for eternity. And so in order for that to happen, our sins had to be given, had to be forgiven. A, an atonement must have been must be made. Now, you and I, <clears throat> we may have goals in our life, but Jesus' goal was the cross always was from the start before time his goal was the cross from the very beginning and we know that because if we go back to the book of revelation and and we see this and this is in revelation 13 verse 8 it says and all who dwell on the earth will worship it and this is talking about the image of the antichrist that's built, everybody, all of the the dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. There's there's a book in heaven that has all of our names in it. If you're a believer in Christ, it has your name in it. Your name has been there since before the foundations of the earth. How does your name get in there? You believe in Christ. When we believe in Christ, we trust him, we, we repent, we, we have a relationship with him. All these things that we need to do in order to have a relationship with Christ. We can't save ourselves, but we do some things in order to do it. We, we believe, we believe in our heart, we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, and we're saved. And our names are in the book of life, from the foundations of the world, before it. 
This has always been the goal of Christ, the cross. God's plan from the very beginning of the world was that Jesus would become a man, that he would die on the cross to forgive us of our sins and rise again from the grave. That's always been the plan. This isn't just something that God came up with at the last minute. Well, hmm. See, I haven't talked to them in over 400 years. So maybe I, maybe I need to send somebody. How about I send you, Jesus? No, that's not how it went. It's always been. That's been the plan. He sets his sights on Jerusalem and his purpose. And the interesting thing is if you look throughout, throughout his ministry, he actually tells his disciples numerous times, that he's going to Jerusalem to be killed. Now, I'm not always the the brightest bulb in the box, you know. Sometimes I don't always understand everything. But I think the disciples were pretty dense. (laughs) But it was intentional. If we go to Luke 18 and we see this, it says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, He's on his, I've set my sights, see, we're, we are going up to Jerusalem. Um, by the way, up doesn't mean it was north. It means Jerusalem sat on top of the hill. It was the highest, one of the highest places in the area. So when you were going to Jerusalem, you were going up to Jerusalem. Going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He told them what was going to happen. He says, going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the, to the Gentiles. They're going to whip me. They're going to flog me. They're going to spit on me. And then they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die. And this is the third time he's told them this. The third time. Now, as parents, we hope our kids hear us and remember what do what we do the first time. We will usually give them some grace the second time. If it's the third time, then we have a problem. Because then they're just not listening to you. But we'll kind of look at why they weren't, why they didn't understand it here in a moment. They didn't understand. It's somewhat understandable why they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. First, they were kept from understanding. It's intentional that they don't understand. You know, if you've spent if you spent two and a half years, almost three years with somebody, and they tell you that we're going up to Jerusalem, to, I'm going up to Jerusalem to be killed, what's your first thing you're going to do? Don't go, right? You're going to argue with them. Don't, don't go do that. You know, don't do it. Just don't do it. So they're kept from knowing that. That's probably one of the reasons why. Second, there was this sense all around them that there's something big in the air. There's something happening. There's, there's this swelling, this upswelling of something going to occur. If, if you look out all through, um, actually through Jesus' life, and actually through the history of Israel, you've you got to understand, a lot of times the reason why we have Jewish festivals is because something big happened. And they're celebrating it. And I'll be honest with you, my thought is, and, and, and I think I, I can prove it with some of the theologians in Scripture, that as we get, as things go forward from here, big events that happen are going to happen on Jewish holidays. It's going to happen at certain times in Jewish holidays. Because it's that pattern that God has created. You see, but there's something going to happen. Something big is in the air. It's Passover. There's a lot of people, or yeah, it's Passover. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem. 
And now they're going up for it to celebrate the fact that God passed over the Jews in Egypt. Also, Israel had been suffering under the nations for a long time. There's this, in Jerusalem, there's this air of expectancy and excitement. There had been many people who came along and said they were the Messiah, and they rose up to go against Rome, and they were conquered, and they were pushed down and defeated. Another one comes along and says he's the Messiah. A bunch of people start following him, and again. But there's something different about Jesus. There's something very different about him. So the people are expecting something to happen. See, they think that the Messiah is going to come in and he's going to establish his kingdom. And they're not really wrong, but they miss the biggest part of the purpose of the Messiah. Yes, the Messiah will set up his kingdom, but it's a kingdom that's here but not yet. See, when, when, when John the Baptist says, you know, repent, and be baptized for the kingdom of God is near. It's here now. It's a spiritual kingdom at this point. One day it will be a physical kingdom, I believe. And we can talk about that, discuss that. There's other thoughts on that. But I believe it's going to be an actual physical kingdom. But right now it's a spiritual kingdom. But he's going to set it up. But first, before he can set up his kingdom, he must suffer and die. If you, if you want to, when, when Jesus says that everything that was pro- prophesied by the prophets is going to happen to the Son of Man, you can go to either Psalm, you can go to Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53. Both of those books, both of those chapters in those two books, give a good description of what's going to happen to Jesus. In fact, it's a chilling description because he talks about things that, you know, you know, pierced hands. At that time when Psalm was written, they weren't crucifying anybody. It hadn't even been invented yet. Read those two chapters, and you'll see. I challenge you to read those this week. You see, what is happening in Jerusalem, what's happening with the disciples, they are focusing on the here and now only. They're sitting here worried about Rome and worried about what's going to happen today. And they don't see the big picture that something has to be fixed before Christ's kingdom is settled here on earth. So after Jesus has set his eyes on Jerusalem, and as he's coming to Jerusalem, he's teaching along the way. In verse 11 of of Luke 19, it says, And they heard these things. He proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He tells them a parable. parable, It's a kingdom parable. And because he gives them this parable, and we're not going to go through it today, I, I suggest you read that this week. They think the kingdom of God is going to be set up now. So this just feeds into the excitement and the anticipation of what's going to occur. And it's in this cauldron of anticipation that Jesus steps into. Jump down to verse 28 of Luke 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, 
He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So Jesus, as he's walking along, sends two of his disciples ahead to a town to get a donkey, a colt who had never been ridden on. Now, some would argue that Jesus is kind of setting up the scene, you know. He knows what the prophets have said, so he's kind of manipulating the circumstances in order to fulfill those prophecies. But look what happens when the two disciples actually go and they get the donkey. Verse 32 says, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Hmm. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Well, didn't Jesus say that's exactly what they would say? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So they find the donkey, just where Jesus said it was. When the owner asks them what they're going to do with it, they tell him. They say exactly what Jesus told them to do. The Lord needs it. And amazingly, the owner lets them take the donkey. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if, if you were sitting at the gas station and you're filling your car up with gas and some guy comes up to you and says, hey, I'm taking your car. The Lord has need of it. What would you do? Uh, I don't think so, right? Or you'd call the police or you'd, you know, whatever you would do to keep them from taking your car. But this guy just says, oh, okay. And they take it. Or whatever he said. We don't see in Luke what he actually said. But they take the donkey. Kind of interesting. Now, the thing about it is, is there's only two possibilities. And, and, I, and one is, I think, totally impossible. Either Jesus, the night before, went ahead of them, found the owner of the donkey, said, hey, at this time of day, have your donkey sitting here. I'm going to send two guys. They're going to say this to you, and you need to reply with this. Or Jesus is who he says he is, and he knows everything. I think the first one's impossible. I don't think it happened. Jesus knows Everything. Everything that's happened, everything that's happening, and everything that will happen. So they bring the donkey back. It says in verse 35, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, him riding on a donkey may seem a little odd to us. I mean, this is the Messiah. This is the king, a king of kings and lord of lords. And here he is riding on a donkey. I don't, I don't see people having a lot of donkey farms and riding donkeys on trails, unless you're like in, you know, out of the Grand Canyon. They do that a lot. But what do people ride around here? Horses, right? And wouldn't you think that the king of kings would be riding in on a war horse, prancing, the war horse prancing along? For him to be riding on a donkey doesn't, would not make a whole lot of sense to the Romans. I thought, I think that was kind of odd. But see, to a Jew at the time of Christ, to ride a donkey into a city, 
If you are the king, that's how the king would ride into a town victorious. If the king had gone off to battle, and usually they didn't ride donkeys into battle, they would ride their horses into battle, and they would get close to the city, especially the capital city, the king would actually get off his horse, get on a donkey, and ride into the town on a donkey. That would tell the people we were victorious. So Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, claiming victory already. Now, I want you to think about that. You're looking for the Messiah. You're looking for the Messiah to come. And here's this man riding on a donkey. I mean, these things start to click. And you're like, "Mm, there's something going on here. And it would increase the excitement. This is different. This is new. We can see um, the kings riding on donkeys. If we go back to 1 Kings chapter 1, it says, And the king, which was King David, said to them, Take with you and the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my mule, and bring him down to Gihon. So as the king was going to be on his way to be anointed king, the new king coming up, he would ride the donkey as the king. In fact, there's also a story of um, Absalom riding his father's donkey, kind of in spite, showing everybody, now I'm the king, you know. But Jesus is also fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah 9, I'm going to read both 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I know I haven't read verse 10 yet because I want to explain a little something. Many times in prophecy, it's what I call a split prophecy. And this was probably what kind of confused people, the ones who knew Zechariah. Because right after this, it says what the king is going to do when he, when he comes. When he comes. The thing about this is this is a split prophecy. This is prophesying to them, because Zechariah was written long before Christ came the first time, prophesying to them that Jesus was going to ride into, the Messiah was going to ride into the town on a donkey. Then we have a prophecy of what's going to happen in the, in the far future from this time, what I think for us is going to be our near future. And that's when Christ comes again. And this is what he will do. He says, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. That's what Christ will do when he comes. He will make true peace to all nations. So we kind of can understand the response of the people as he's riding, as they see him coming, and as they hear his disciples begin to praise him. And what we see next in verse 37 of Luke 19. It says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the almighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, in the book of Matthew, in Matthew's account of this, they, they shout, Hosanna! Which is the song we sang first when the kids came in with the palm branches. They're saying, Hosanna! So what does Hosanna mean? 
I mean, many times people think Hosanna is like a declaration of praise, like hallelujah, right? But the truth is that it is actually a plea for salvation. It comes from two Jewish words that we see in Psalm 118.25. It says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. So the word save, the first word, save us, or deliver us, is yasha in Hebrew. And the word for translated as pray is anah, which means to beg or to beseech. So combine these two words, yasha and anah, yasha anah, hosanna. Is how we translate that. So here's what they're saying. Saying, we beg you, deliver us. See, they're, they know something is that, but they don't understand, though. They don't understand what they're saying. I mean, can you imagine the excitement of that day? This is it. This, this man that the disciples had spent two and a half plus years with every day who had taught them, who had disciplined them, had loved them, fed them. He was going to become what they had suspected was true. I mean, they had their, they had their you know, you don't spend two and a half years with someone every day and not kind of figure out some things about that person, right? I think for most of us married people, it probably took 10 years for us to maybe figure out about half of what we knew about, we should know about our spouses. See, they knew something was different. But they still doubted. They never fully believed. They just suspected that there was something. Because they, they had hoped that as he was, especially since the anticipation was there, they were hoping that if Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, because normally, you know, when a king comes in, who does he make his court? Who's closest friends? The people he can trust. That's why they're asking, who's the greatest? That's why James and John's mother comes up to him and says, could you, when your kingdom comes, can you make my one son sit on the one side and one son on the other? They think that they're going to be, yeah, we're going to, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get, I'll be a, like a, I'll be the herald or I'll be, I'll be his advisor. We'll be, you know, all these things that are going through their head. They wanted Jesus as their king as long as it was on their terms. They were praising him, thinking, wow, he's going to overthrow the Romans. And when he does that, we're going to have success. We're going to have happiness and wealth. Israel is going to go. We're going to go back to the way it was with David. But they wanted Rome destroyed, kicked out of Israel. But see, they didn't understand that the destruction that Jesus was going to bring was actually going to be the destruction of their false religion first. It didn't start out that way, but it became corrupt. It was a, it was a salvation by works, and that's not what it's about. It never has been. 
Abraham believed God and he was credited, it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham did nothing but believe. That's what God wants. Their hypocritical religion and the sins that they cherished in their lives were going to be destroyed. Now, there are a lot of people in the church today, I think, like this. Not hopefully in this church, but a lot of people in churches today, they sing praises about God every day, every Sunday. They use, say Jesus' name, and, and they believe as long as their wealth and their success and their happiness is there. But don't talk to them about obedience. Don't talk to them about sacrifice, commitment, repentance. Don't talk about those things. Don't talk about sin. Mm. We want people to be happy. We want people to feel good about themselves. Like many in Jerusalem, many people today loudly proclaim the name of Jesus, not even knowing who Jesus truly is. Um, yesterday, I was, we were sitting with the guys in, um, for coffee, and I, I was talking to them about a video. There's a guy I watch. His name is Chris Rossborough. He is a Lutheran pastor. He has a... a um, a podcast called Fighting for the Faith. And he takes what's said about the word about God and compares it to the Word of God. And he he actually had a video of a church, a, Pres- a Presbyterian USA church, had a woman up there who was praying to the God of all identities, the he, she, and they. And it was blasphemous. It truly was. See, a lot of people in churches have no idea who Jesus is because the churches are not preaching Jesus from the Bible. The Jesus who came, suffered, died for their sins. They want the Jesus who, who comes in and makes their life perfect, makes their life good. You can have your best life now, as Joel Olstein says. A lot of people today will proclaim Jesus as long as he will satisfy their selfish desires. Now, not everyone in Jerusalem is happy to see Jesus. This is not, like I say, this is not the first time he's been there. Not the first time he's, he's preached and come to Jerusalem. Jesus is now a wanted man. The rulers of the temple want to kill him. In fact, if you read in other parts of, of the Gospels, um, they want to kill Lazarus too. Because a lot of people are talking about the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead. And it just sparks even more acclaim for Christ. So they say, well, kill Lazarus too. But they can't because they are afraid of what the people are going to do. Luke 19, verse 39, says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, because everybody is, everybody is worshiping God, saying, Glory to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Right? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I was joking this last week with Bill Fretz. I said I wanted to put some speakers out in the stones out there and have them crying Hosanna as you guys came in today. I thought that would be kind of funny. But we worship in here, so it's okay. Now understand, the Pharisees are powerless to stop what's going on. Because the people are, are, are so excited about what's going on. So they want Jesus to stop them. Control your, control your people. 
right? But what Jesus says is, it is more likely that the impossible will happen. But the very rocks would cry out than if the king of glory is, enters into Jerusalem without people praising his name. See, joy and worship of God is appropriate. It's very appropriate. And it's necessary. Now, remember when I said earlier in my sermon that, you know, the halls of leadership are full of emotions. And I don't just mean like, you know, sadness. I mean, we're talking a huge swing of emotions. You know, we've all had those. One day it's like sunny and, oh, it's great to be alive. Oh, I love it. And the next day it's cloudy, rainy, and you're like, ugh. You know? I've been that a lot recently. Just like, ugh. I want warm temperatures and sunshine. I want to be out soaking in some sun. There's a wide range of emotions that happen when you're in leadership. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he becomes very emotional. It says in verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. They were just praising his name. They were just worshiping God. And he comes to the city, sees the city, and he begins to weep. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We don't see very many places in Scripture where Jesus cries. We know he did when Lazarus died. He wasn't crying over Lazarus. He was crying because they had no faith. He's not crying over Jerusalem because Jerusalem is being held by the Romans. And the leaders of the, of the temple are, are leading the people astray. That's not why he's crying. He's weeping over them because they don't believe and they don't have faith. They don't trust him. He knows their hearts. He knows why they're calling Hosanna. Because they want him to overthrow Rome. And he's, there's something much greater than Rome hindering your life. In our world today, I, you know, I'm, I'm so fed up with our government. And I don't care if this gets out there on the Internet. I, if I have black you know, SUVs pull up in, my, in front of my yard, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> but understand, I'm fed up with it. I'm fed up with all of it. But you know what I'm more fed up with? The sin that's in my life. That government's going to go away sooner or later. My sin needs to be taken care of, needs to be dealt with, needs to be overcome, needs to be repented of, because that's eternal. What the government does, Psh, whatever. People will keep asking me, well, you know, how much, how much are you going to have to be tortured before you deny Christ? I said, never happen. I won't, I won't deny him. Well, they can do a lot of bad things to you. Yep, they sure can. That's temporary. It's temporary. Jesus is crying over the city because of their lack of faith. The people are looking at the wrong place for peace. We do that, right? We look to the government to bring us peace and contentment. We look to our worldly goods to bring us contentment and peace. I'm guilty of that. I love to buy things. 
I have to really temper temper it. Because I could. I could I could have debt skyrocketing debt. I don't. I pay my bill, my credit cards every month. I don't have debt. Except for the house. But worldly goods will not do it. Sometimes we, we look to our relationships to bring us contentment, to bring us joy. People fail us. The very ones closest to us fail us. All the pastors I've talked to that I've known who've struggled in their, in their ministries, it's always the people that you invest the most into that hurt you the most. The ones that leave the church, you've invested all your time in them, and they still leave the church, and they want nothing to do with you. We place our hope in the creation instead of the creator. And that's what they're doing in Jerusalem as Jesus is coming and he's crying over it. They should be looking to the prince of peace for contentment and peace. But see, the problem is, is that the truth of peace about peace is hidden from their eyes. Now you could say God is hiding it from them intentionally or it could be that their sins and their focus on the worldly things is hiding the truth from them. It's not always that Satan is blinding us. It's sometimes we blinding ourselves because we're putting other things before God. That's what blinds us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There's no reason why we shouldn't see the gospel in every part of our lives because it's not veiled for us. We put up the veil. We put up the blinders. God doesn't. It's open to us. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If somebody doesn't believe in God, it's it's partially because either they've put the blinders up or Satan himself is blinding them. But you and I... Satan doesn't have that power over us. We can overcome him. Put on the full armor of God. The evil in the world wants to blind people to the truths of God's word. But the answer is what Paul gives in Colossians 3. It says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. And then as Jesus is weeping over the city, he prophesies about what's going to happen to Jerusalem, and this will occur in 70 A.D. Verse 43, 44, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He just was weeping that they don't see the truth, and now he's telling them this is what's going to happen because of it. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. With sadness and weeping, Jesus sees the temple being destroyed. In fact, if you go to the temple today, on one side there are these huge rocks which they believe are from the time of Christ that the Romans knocked down and threw over the side of the temple mount. Jesus' prophecy comes true. But see, Jesus at that time, the people at that time had misunderstood his role and his mission. They're celebrating, laughing, cheering, while Jesus is sobbing about the spiritual truth of this great city and of its people. I'm afraid that Jesus would probably weep over the church today 
for the same reason. The next scene we see in, in the book of Luke is we see Jesus in the temple. It says in verse 45, As he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus comes into the temple, sees what's going on. He, he, he assesses what is happening in the temple. And he throws a temper tantrum, right? No. Some people might call it that, but that's not what it was. What Jesus did was, was what's called righteous indignation. He sees the wrong being done. He's angry at the leaders of the temple because what we don't know from Scripture, but we know from history and from books written by Jewish authors and Jewish historians is the fact that at that time, what they would do is the outer court, where the court of the Gentiles was, they'd set up like a market. Because if you came to Jerusalem to do your sacrifice, you, nine times out of ten, you wouldn't bring your animals with you. If you were from all the way up from Galilee, you wouldn't be able to bring your animals. You'd be robbed on the way. So what you could do is you could come to Jerusalem and they'd have stalls where you could buy sacrifices. The problem was is that they, first of all, they were overcharging you for the sacrifices. You, what are you going to do? You have to sacrifice. These are the only ones you can buy. We got gotcha. you. The other thing they were doing is you could not pay the temple tax with Roman money. So you had to change your money to temple money. And in order to do that, there was an exchange rate. They were overcharging on the exchange rate. The priests were getting rich on this. Not only that, the priests would control where the booths were set up. Well, you know, if you, if you, want, if you want a booth by the beautiful gate, if you, it's going to cost you a little bit more. That's what they were doing. They were taking advantage of people. Ripping people off. And in fact, what they were doing were keeping them from God. And this made him angry. You want to make God mad? Keep people from him. And Jesus said, suffer little children to come unto me. You want to make him mad? Keep children from knowing Jesus. That's why when people physically and emotionally abuse children to the point that they, and especially if they're people, the parents are the people claim to be Christian, that makes God angry. That child hates God because of what you've done. We need to be bridges, not barriers to those who do not know Christ. Now, I want you to understand, this does not mean that we water down the gospel so that they accept it. No, we preach the truth in love. We preach the full gospel. We don't try to make it more palatable for people. We preach it and allow the Holy Spirit to do His thing. He's responsible for changing the hearts, not us. Don't change the message. The message is the gospel, the true, full gospel. Now, for the rest of the week, Jesus is teaching in the temple says in verse 47, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now I suggest that this week as we lead up to Good Friday, that you read Luke chapter 20 and 21. Because it talks about all the things that Jesus teaches, the parables he teaches while he's in the temple and he's with the people. And then join us on Good Friday at 7 o'clock for a service. Now as we close today, I challenge you to examine your life. Examine your life. 
we, we have a tendency not to see our sins, not to think that we're sinning, but the reality is we are. We're all sinners. And we need to confess it to God. And what a, the best time, I think, any time is the best time, but a good time to do that is during this time of the season, during Easter. Recommit yourself to Christ. John wrote in 1 John 1, he says, If you say we, if you, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all have struggles in our lives. We're all struggling with things. And we all struggle with sins. And that, that's the first thing we need to do. If we have struggles in our life, we first need to eliminate the sin in our lives. We need to confess it. Hand it over to Christ. He's paid the price for it already. We just need to give it to him. We need to give it up. Quit trying to deal with it ourselves and cover it up and hide it from ourselves and hide it from everybody. Confess it. Because see, Jesus can come in. He can turn your tables. He can turn your tables over. He can clean your house if we just cry to him for help. What we need to do is we need to step off the throne as king of our lives and allow the king of kings and the Lord of lords to not just reign in our life today, but for eternity. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.